Hi, Big Remy here. This is For the Record Program number 1220, War Games Part 2. This is being recorded on December 29th of the year 2021. Before getting into the program itself, three links. One of those links, uh, by the way, these links are at the top of each For the Record written description and at the top of each Food for Thought post. One link will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by Parafractal, our brilliant contributing editor, sometimes by other worthy listeners. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, then sister station WFMU is doing just that. They are podcasting the program. And the third link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it. I'm now in my 43rd year on the air, and the flash drive is current as of for the record 1215 and includes all of the Oswald Institute of Virology programs. I can't stress strongly enough that listeners should get that. I think it is unlikely that we are going to make it as a civil, as, as a civilization and as a species, as asinine as that may appear to be some people or extreme or off the wall. Well, uh, sadly, the things that I have cobbled together over those 42-plus years, I think, will chronicle not only the manifestation of the events themselves, but the institutional foundation upon which those ongoing events are predicated. And again, I I could not be more pessimistic. Uh, You want to know what the future holds for you and yours, in my estimation? People are no doubt familiar with the popular, vulgar expression, eat S blank, 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 and die. That is what you and yours are going to do in that orbit. You are going to eat S blank, 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 and then you are going to die. I know that sounds extreme, uh, overly pessimistic as we head into a new year and people are accustomed to uh, clinking glasses and posting themselves good health, good cheer, and a happy new year, etc. Just take a look at the world around you, assuming that your mask is not causing your glasses to steam up. Extremely long story made, extremely short. <laughs> The virus was made right here. It does come from a laboratory. The laboratory ain't in China, and it didn't effing leak. And a civilization, a government that will do that will do anything. And uh, I think that we are basically doomed. Uh, you should get the flash drive because I think you owe it to our civilization, and you owe it to any descendants 
that you may have to do what you can to preserve the record. And that way you can explain to them why it is that they are living in a cave or a burned-out uh, sport utility vehicle and uh, foraging for uh, edible things in a garbage heap and perhaps baffling about with former Army Rangers for rat-killing turf. Uh, again, I couldn't be more pessimistic. I do think that people have an obligation to make themselves a repository for the information that will chronicle the descent and, I believe, ultimately annihilation of our civilization. They don't call me good time, Dave Emery, for nothing. Now, uh, to the program at hand, this is called War Games Part 2. This is a sequel to, for the record, program number 1219, War Games Part 1. War Games usually is a term used to apply to uh, serious military maneuvers which are simulating uh, actual combat. In this case, uh, the name applies to something that is no more than a single generation removed from that. Uh, a remarkable book, a book that proves that indeed big things can come in small packages, is called The Complex, subtitled How the Military Invades Our Everyday Lives. It was authored by Nick Purse, P-U-R-S-E, published in softcover by Picador Books. And um, that is a subsidiary of Henry Holt and Company. It's a short book with large print, and yet it chronicles just how the military has come to uh, not just invade our everyday lives, but really... We live in a culture that is inextricably linked with the military, particularly economically. Uh, in uh, the books for download section, in the introduction to uh, the book, The uh, Germany Plots with the Kremlin from 1953 by T.H. Tettens, there is a 1940 article by Dorothy Thompson from the New York Herald Tribune in which she discusses the Nazi industrialist and financier cadre who were behind the Third Reich and financed it and in turn benefited from its conquests and undertakings. And they said basically that their viewpoint was that economic control leads automatically to political control. Well, that certainly applies to the military, and even beyond that. Uh, War Games Part 2 is going to continue with a chapter in Nick Curtis's remarkable book, by the way, uh, published in 2008, when the Iraq War and Afghanistan War were going strong or weak, however you want to look at it. They weren't the most successful undertakings from a strict military standpoint. But in a chapter called A Virtual World of War, uh, arguably the most amazing, at least to me being an old geezer, uh, this chapter documents how the video games that kids play are themselves developed in no small measure by the military. And in turn, 
the military with a generous assist from Hollywood then adapts those very same video games to military electronic training devices and simulators. And in turn, uh, youngsters who have proved adept at playing these video games are primary recruiting targets for the military precisely because their skills at gaming makes them superbly qualified to operate the electronic control systems of contemporary weaponry. There actually was a science fiction movie a few years ago called Ender's Game, in which uh, the Earth military recruits youngsters who were adept at gaming to fight an alien civilization. And one fellow, I think his name was Ender, uh, turns out to be the hero of the movie, and he actually uh, directs uh, an attack on the alien world which annihilates it. And uh, he is in his position by virtue of his skills as a gamer. And that is basically how things really are. In that context, uh, people should keep in mind the remarkable book by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He is a former army ranger, uh, or a former paratrooper and army ranger who taught psychology at West Point at the U.S. Military Academy. And in On Killing, he analyzes the epidemic of gun violence among youth, and he discounts many of the factors that have normally been cited, such as access to firearms, gang phenomenon, drugs, citing that all of those things were available before. And what he talks about is what he believes is the decisive role, the decisive influence of not only high body count television programs and movies, but the point-and-shoot video games that kids are playing. Um, he, he cites those as the primary factors behind the epidemic of youth violence in no small measure because, in Colonel Grossman's opinion, and again, he taught psychology at West Point, perhaps still does, I don't know, uh, he sees in those high body count movies and TV programs and the point-and-shoot video games replications of the audiovisual desensitization programs that the military has used in order to basically program or to reprogram uh, recruits to fire their weapons more readily. The conditioned inhibition against killing led something like only 20% of uh, enlistees or uh, recruits in World War II to actually fire their weapons. That was up to, I think, over 50%, maybe 60% in Korea, and up to 90% in Vietnam. That was due in no small measure, according to Colonel Grossman, to the military's audiovisual desensitization programs to basically reprogram and behave and modify the behavior of recruits in such a way as to basically make them uh, more willing killers on the battlefield. And again, he cites that uh, the point-and-shoot video games and high-body-count movies and TV programs as the decisive element in the epidemic of youth violence. Consider 
what Primo Grossman had come across in the context of the absolutely remarkable, really the relationship between video games and their makers and the military uh, is so profound that one really cannot separate the two. They are inextricably linked. The military, with a generous assist from Hollywood, helps to develop the video games, and in turn, those video games are once again uh, repurposed and uh, refined by the military to create the electronic simulators that they use for their high-tech weapon systems. And in turn, the recruits who prove themselves to be very skilled at those military-influenced video games become primary recruiting targets for the military precisely because of their skills at uh, operating uh, or are basically simulations of actual battlefield high-tech weaponry. In the chapter titled A Virtual World of War, we are going to pick up overlapping slightly with what we looked at in our last program, and that is the actual genesis. We are going to begin with the actual genesis of home video games with a fellow named Ralph Baer, an employee of Laurel Electronics, a defense contractor. Nick Terse writes as follows, and again, this is in 2008 was when the book was published. (laughs) It's a lot more, uh, the relationship is a lot more developed today. In 1951, Ralph Bayer, B-A-E-R, an engineer working for defense contractor Loral Electronics, today part of Lockheed Martin on computer components for Navy radar systems, dreamed up the idea of home video games which he termed, quote, interactive TV-based entertainment. In 1958, at Brookhaven National Laboratory, one of the U.S. Department of Energy's nuclear labs, William Higginbotham created the first proto-video game, Tennis for Two, not unlike the later Pong, in which an on-screen blip was batted back and forth on one of the lab's oscilloscopes. In 1962, Steve Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, a young computer programmer at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Lab, part of Project MAC, a venture funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, created Space Form, a simple shoot-em-up featuring spaceships which ran on a 17-square-foot PDP-1 mini-computer with a rudimentary monitor. Project Mac was staffed by many game-playing programmers who called themselves hackers, and according to technology writer Howard Rheingold, was one of the most important meeting grounds of both the AI prodigies of the 1970s and the software designers of the 1980s, unquote. Space War quickly spread through computer labs across the U.S., in his analysis of war and video games from Hizunzu to Xbox, Ed Halter, H-E-L-T-E-R, notes that by 1963, Stanford University's Computer Studies Department already felt compelled to ban playing of the game during business hours. 
While military academic labs were pioneering video gaming, a similar revolution was occurring in the facilities of the military electronics firm Sanders Associates, today part of defense contracting giant BAE Systems, which took in $4.7 billion from the Pentagon in 2006. After leaving Loral for Sanders, Ralph Bayer wrote his first full report on the interactive home video game system. With support and two assistance provided by Sanders, Bayer created the hardware for the first home gaming system in 1969. His invention was eventually licensed to Magnavox as The Odyssey, with a capital O. By 1972, it was being peddled to the public while larger coin-operated cousins were becoming increasingly common in bars, airports, and shopping center-based video game arcades across America. At roughly the same time, the Army also began taking military simulators to the masses. In 1968, at the height of the Vietnam War, the Army set up a weapons simulation display at Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. Now, I'm going to interrupt briefly. This is in 1968. At the height of the Vietnam War, in uh, for the record programs of uh, twelve ten and twelve eleven, we looked at some excerpts from Nick Pierce's book "Kill Anything That Moves" about the Vietnam War. It was a very disturbing book, and yet a very objective book and uh, non-judgmental, albeit it was unsparing and unyielding in the clarity of its uh, coverage of uh, U.S. atrocities in the Vietnam War. It actually proved to be very cathartic to many combat veterans who had uh, either put their experiences in the background or uh, suppressed them or repressed them altogether. It is a very disturbing book, as I noted when I uh, read those excerpts in For the Record 1210 and 1211. I am not a shrinking violet, and yet I found reading that book to be very disturbing and very hard to do. One should twine that book with this passage. In 1968, at the height of the Vietnam War, the Army set up a weapons simulation display at Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. There, visitors could electronically fire an anti-tank weapon or test their skills with an M-16. The pièce de résistance, however, was a bell UH-1D Huey helicopter simulator that, wrote the Los Angeles Times, gave, quote, visitors a chance to fire an electronic machine gun at simulated Vietnamese homes, unquote, causing lights to flash when they hit the target. While protests eventually shut down the Army exhibit, the Air Force continued with plans for a similar exhibit that would allow museum goers to, quote, participate in simulated B-52 missions, unquote. Progress now moved along parallel military and civilian tracks. In 1971, Nolan Bushnell, who had first played Space War in a University of Utah computer lab, designed his own version of the game and licensed it to a coin-op manufacturer. 
The game bombed, but the next year he founded his own company, Atari, and introduced a simpler game, Pong, which was a huge arcade hit. Soon, Atari became the largest builder of coin-op video games. In 1974, there were nearly 100,000 coin-operated video games across America when Atari introduced Home Pong, its own at-home gaming console, followed in 1977 by the Atari 2600. While Magnavox's Odyssey used transistors and diodes, allowing for only the most rudimentary of graphics, the Atari 2600 was an 8-bit gaming system that used interchangeable cartridges and represented a quantum leap forward in gameplay. Atari proceeded to make $5 billion over the next five years with a whole range of video games, including the military-themed combat, air-sea battle, and the battle zone. As new civilian gaming technology surpassed his Odyssey system, Ralph Bayer transitioned right back into military work, re-engineering a television-based game into a multifaceted weapons training simulator. Meanwhile, in 1979, the Department of Defense began investing in the Geometry Engine, a computer graphics technology that found its way into later home gaming systems like the Nintendo 64. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the military began using video games in earnest. In 1977, writes Ed Halter, quote, Programmers at the U.S. Army Armor School modified a tank simulator called Panther Plato into an obscure prototype training system for tank gunners, unquote. Panther Plato reportedly inspired Atari's Battle Zone, a minimalist 3D tank simulator released in 1980 that gave gamers a first-person perspective, looking out from a tank instead of down on it. The Army immediately saw the possibilities of Battle Zone, and in the year it was released, its training and doctrine command, TrackDoc, approached Atari about creating a military version of the game to be used as a training tool. While the game's designer originally balked at collaborating with the armed forces, the lure of military money and a possible gaming gravy train were apparently too much for Atari executives. At the Atari's behest, and under the auspices of TrackDoc, all in capitals, the designer modified the game into the souped-up Army battle zone, which used realistic ballistics, enemy vehicles modeled on Soviet tanks and helicopters at the time, and a realistic controller designed, according to video game expert Lauren Gonzalez, to to mimic the controls of a Bradley infantry fighting vehicle, unquote. The Army then even began to talk of, quote, commissioning games to be produced especially for them, unquote, while Atari's chief R&B showed that, beginning again, the Army then even began to talk of commissioning games to be produced especially for them, unquote, while Atari's chief of research and development showed that the technology transfer was a two-way street. The company, he said, was looking into a high-tech helmet like the one used by military helicopter gunners, which tracks the gunners' eyeballs 
and aims the weapon where the gunner is looking, unquote. The system Atari created, which actually tracked forehead movement, caused headaches and was never released. By 1982, the combined annual take from arcade and home video games was an estimated $7 billion. That same year, the New York Times reported that the military, quote, was trying to decide who might best sit at the controls of their evolving electronic weapons, and, not surprisingly, video gamers came to mind since preliminary tests cited by some experts suggested that pilots with good psychomotor skills also do well at video games, unquote. The New York Times also included the caveat, no one is considering Pac-Man yet as a recruiting device, unquote. This was, wasn't exactly true. I would say it was a flat-out lie, and not the first time the uh, New York Times has done that. The New York Times being the publisher of the Warren Report, continuing... In 1981, an officer from the Army's Training Support Center at Fort Eustis, Virginia, proclaimed, quote, If there's a kid who can score 100,000 points on one of the games right off the start, isn't that the kind of young man who has the hand-eye coordination that could lead to a bright future as a gunner? The answer was apparently a resounding yes. The next year, Brigadier General Winfield Scott HARP, H-A-R-P-E, the commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service, noted that, quote, all those kids buying video games were his target audience. Quote, the kids who play video games today will be the flyers of tomorrow, unquote. That same year, the Navy's top recruiter revealed her secret, stalking arcades and plunking down quarters to give potential enlistees free games. After we played the game, unquote, she said, I'd start asking them what their plans were after high school. Then I'd point out that the Navy was a highly electronic organization. I knew they'd be into that because they were into the games, unquote. In 1983, the military's commander-in-chief, Ronald Reagan, speaking at Walt Disney's futuristic Epcot Center, put the icing on the cake when he likened the military's computerized cockpits to the video game screens mesmerizing American youth. Quote, Watch a 12-year-old take evasive action and score multiple hits while playing Space Invaders, he exclaimed, and you will appreciate the skills of tomorrow's pilot, unquote. By the early 1980s, Military simulators used by actual pilots had become ever more sophisticated and pricey as military corporate powerhouses like IBM and McDonnell Douglas came to dominate the field. These huge, high-tech standalone units like Link's 43-ton B-52 bomber simulator often cost significantly more than the weapons systems they were designed to mimic such as $35 million simulators for aircraft that cost $18 million and still only trained personnel in specific tasks, like landing on the deck of an aircraft carrier. DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, called on Captain Jack Thorpe, a flight training research scientist with the Air Force, to assess the situation. 
in 1978, Thorpe posited that simulators should focus on collective training. As such, tens or even hundreds of simulators would need to be networked together at a time when the Air Force could barely manage to connect two. DARPA approved Thorpe's long-term plan to create the Simulator Networking, or SimNet, project using video game and entertainment industry technology. One more time for emphasis. DARPA approved Thorpe's long-term plan to create the Simulator Networking, or SimNet, project using video game and entertainment industry technology. As a result... In 1982, a year in which a Department of Defense catalog listed an inventory of, quote, 363 war games, simulations, exercises, and models, unquote, Fort put together a team that included industrial and computer graphics designers to create a network of tank simulators for group training exercises. Elements of the system began their testing phase in 1987, and soon enough, Burpa's SimNet enabled the military to war game, utilizing, quote, approximately 300 players in simulated aircraft and ground combat vehicles located in Europe and the U.S. on the same virtual battlefield, unquote. Gaming continued elsewhere in the military as well. In 1990, the Army's Watsi recruitment campaign began mailing out floppy disks bearing a short video game and interactive quiz to 25,000 college-bound high school seniors in an effort to stem falling enrollments. That same year, SimNet became fully operational just in time to provide a virtual training environment for American troops who would soon fight in the first Gulf War. Another computer wargaming milestone was achieved during the summer of 1990 when the military began playing the coming war digitally in the form of a simulation known as Internal Look. In his memoir, the former commander of U.S. Forces, General H. Norman Schwarzkopf, wrote, but at U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, quote, We played internal look in late July of 1990, setting up a mock headquarters complete with computers and communication gear. As the exercise got underway, the movements of Iraq's real-world ground and air forces eerily paralleled the imaginary scenario of the game. As the game began, the message center also passed along routine intelligence bulletins about the real Middle East. Those concerning Iraq were so similar to the game dispatches that the message center ended up having to stamp the fictional reports with a prominent disclaimer, exercise only, unquote. But internal look did not go off without a hitch. The day of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, which he allegedly war-gamed using an American-made simulator, Michael Macedonia, 
the son of the man who was reportedly one of the first to introduce computer war games to the Pentagon and who himself had been experimenting with computerized war games since the 1980s and had become a manager of information systems for one of the military's electronic warfare centers, was flown to CENTCOM to work on its crashing computer system. Eventually, the whole CENTCOM gaming center was packed off to Saudi Arabia, where, during the war games developed as part of the war game, were utilized beginning again. Eventually, the whole CENTCOM gaming center was packed off to Saudi Arabia, where, during the war, plans developed as part of the war game were utilized in actual military operations. During the conflict, American audiences were captivated by images of techno-war made bloodless in the green glow of night vision photography and carefully selected and totally unrepresentative video images provided by the Pentagon to breathless television networks of smart weaponry hitting targets. Given the atmosphere, it is hardly surprising that Douglas Kellner, author of The Persian Gulf TV War, turned the conflict a high-tech cyber spectacle that literally took TV viewers into a new cyberspace realm of experience which many viewers were familiar with through video and computer games. The fact that bombs were hitting the fact that bombs were falling on Iraqi civilians and destroying their homes and social infrastructure was also obscured by the Nintendo-like video images of the pyrotechnics of modern warfare, unquote. At roughly the same time as U.S. pilots in F-15 fighters were slaughtering Iraqis from the skies, Americans on the home front were doing the same thing, sort of. After selling more than one million copies to PC gamers, MicroProse Software began offering its F-15 Strike Eagle as a coin-operated arcade game. Quote, For an initial investment of 50 cents, you can fly the plane that bombed Baghdad, unquote, was the way one newspaper article described the game. One of the F-15 Strike Eagle arcade games was even flown to Saudi Arabia for U.S. personnel to play during downtime. Not only was F-15 Strike Eagle reported to be a civilian version of an actual combat flight simulator, but Microprose's president, John W. Wild Bill Spiele, was an Air Force Academy graduate and a retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel whose previous job had been advising the Joint Chiefs of Staff, unquote. Just days into the ground combat portion of the Gulf War, the Battle of 73 Easting pitted American armored vehicles against a much larger Iraqi tank force. The U.S. troops, who had trained using the SIMNET system, routed the Iraqis. Within days, the military began turning the actual battle into a digital simulation for use with SIMNET. Intensive debriefing sessions with 150 veterans of the battle were undertaken. Then, proper personnel went out onto the battlefield with the veterans, surveying tank tracks and burned-out Iraqi vehicles as the veterans themselves walked them through each individual segment of the clash. 
Additionally, radio communications, satellite photos, and black boxes, unquote, from U.S. tanks were used to gather even more details. Nine months after the actual combat took place, a digital recreation of the Battle of 73 Easting was premiered for high-ranking military personnel. Here was the culmination of Thorpe's efforts to create a networked system that would allow troops to train for future wars using the new technology combined with accurate historical data. In late 1993, with the green glow of Gulf War victory already fading, id Software introduced the video game Doom. Gamers soon began modifying shareware copies of this ultra-violent, ultra-popular first-person shooter game, prompting id to release editing software the next year. The ability to customize Doom caught the attention of members of the Marine Corps Modeling and Simulation Management Office who had been tasked by the Corps' Commandant, Charles Kulak, was utilizing, quote, personnel computer PC-based war games to help the Marines, unquote, develop decision-making skills, particularly when live training time and opportunities are limited one more time. The ability to customize Doom caught the attention of members of the Marine Corps Modeling and Simulation Management Office who had been tasked by the Corps' Commandant, Charles Kulak, with utilizing personnel computer PC-based war games to help the Marines develop decision-making skills, particularly when live training time and opportunities are limited, unquote. Acting on Kulak's directive, the Marines' modeling crew mixed Doom's fantasy weapons and labyrinthine locale and in three months' time developed Marine Doom, a game that included only actual Marine Corps weaponry and realistic environments. Kulak liked what he saw, and in 1997 approved the game. It's not meant to replace field time. It never will, said Project Officer Lieutenant Scott Barnett. Barnett, excuse me, one more time. It is not meant to replace field time. It never will, said Project Officer Lieutenant Scott Barnett. But there's a whole lot more that you can do with this tool. The fun factor is very important. That's what makes our Marines want to use it. But it's an honest-to-God training tool. You can do mission rehearsal and mission planning, unquote. Doom was just one game in the Corps' arsenal. The Marines were also playing games such as Harpoon 2, Tigers on the Prowl, Operation Crusader, Patriot, and another id first-person shooter Quake, as well as hosting Doom tournaments. They also signed up with Good Times Interactive for a follow-up game, Battle Site Zero, exchanging their input and combat expertise for a $1 million investment in the game. But the Marines were out for even bigger game. Back in 1990, two members of the original SimNet project team, Warren Katz and John Morrison, had founded Mac Technologies, that's M-A-K, to develop software to link, simulate, 
and visualize the virtual world, unquote. In 1997, the Marine Corps signed a deal with Mac. No longer content to dabble only in the off-the-shelf software, the Marines passed Mac to create the, quote, first video game to be co-funded and co-developed by the Department of Defense and the entertainment industry, unquote. Dubbed MEU-31, an elite Marine expeditionary unit, the game, according to Katz, quote, represented a major step for the Department of Defense in that they are recognizing the benefits of collaborating with a commercial video game publisher from the beginning of the game design process. This will result in a video game which is much more realistic than any other game ever produced for this genre, making its commercial success highly likely, while at the same time giving the DOB the cost-benefit of unusually large volume sales for a military training device, unquote. The year that it inked the deal with the Marines, MAK, whose other customers include such defense industry stalwarts as IPP Industries, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon joined forces with Zombie Studios, a company headed by Mark Long, a retired U.S. Army officer who had worked at General Dynamics Combined Arms Systems Engineering Laboratory, and Joanna Alexander, who had served as deputy chair of a Pentagon committee advising military officials on issues relating to technology transfer and virtual reality, to publish the M1A2 Abrams Battle Tank Simulator Spearhead, and soon after, the Army contracted with MAK to create Spearhead 2, a simulator designed to train tank crews and commanders in tactical decision-making. Meanwhile, the Navy began using 6881 Hunter Submarine Simulation Game, Speaking about such collaborations between the gaming industry and the military, Katz accurately predicted that, quote, we are going to see more and more of this during the next several years. This is going to become a big trend, unquote. Soon enough, the Army Game Project was at work on America's Army. I s- Soon enough, the Army Game Project was at work on America's Army. ICP was developing its full-spectrum command simulator, and in 2001, the Department of Defense modified Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Rogue Spear by game maker Ubisoft to train military personnel on how to conduct small unit military operations in urban terrain. The rest followed, leading to the current continuous military gaming or simulation loop where commercial video games are adapted as military training aids, and military simulators are re-engineered into civilian gaming moneymakers in all sorts of strange and confusing ways. One more time, because in many ways this is the thesis statement of this program and of this chapter. The rest followed, leading to the current continuous military gaming simulation loop where commercial video games are adapted as military training aids and military simulators 
are re-engineered into civilian gaming moneymakers in all sorts of strange and confusing ways. For instance, in 2005, as video games climbed to a $25 billion a year global industry, a website created, developed, and designed with grants from both the DOD's Joint Advanced Distributed Learning Co-Laboratory and DARPA reported that the U.S. military was using at least 55 video games and simulators. The list spanned the gamut from custom-made training programs such as anti-terrorism force protection by Will Interactive to military-produced fare like America's Army and commercial off-the-shelf games like the Microsoft Flight Simulator used by the Navy, Breakaway Games Peloponnesian War, a strategy game used at the National Defense University, Activision's Soldier of Fortune, and Electronic Arts Medal of Honor, both used by the Marines at their infantry cognitive skills labs, as well as Konami's Air Force Delta Storm and Blizzard's Starcraft, where players take part in a, quote, galactic conflict between three different species on the edge of known space. Both are used by the Air Force. On the civilian side, that very same year, you could play the Army's Navy-designed America's Army on a personal computer for free, or play a pay-to-play version with the Microsoft Xbox system, or even use your own PC to take part in the special Teams Challenge at the GoArmy.com website. Similarly, you could use your home computer to download the National Guard's Guard Force, a real-time strategy game using modern military equipment and units operating in snow-covered mountains and lush jungles, performing covert assaults, counterinsurgency, and rescue, unquote. You could run the Navy's, one more time, you could run the Navy's Navy training exercise strike and retrieve game on your PC or occupy yourself with SOCOM 2, U.S. Navy SEALs, a game produced with the assistance of the Navy Special Warfare Command or SOCOM 3, for which the Navy provided technical support on your Sony PlayStation 2 system. At Air Force recruiting centers, you could fly, unquote, the U.S. Air Force's F-22 Raptor, a Predator unmanned drone, or a C-17 Globemaster free transport while playing U.S. Air Force Air Dominance, unquote. At the Air National Guard website, there were three possibilities, Sky Tank, Air Battle, or Parachute Mission. And if you weren't already seated, the good news was the Marine Corps simulated turn one more time. And if you weren't already seated, the good news was the Marine Corps simulated turn video game close combat first to fight had just released for play on the Xbox and PCs. The U.S. intelligence agencies had not been shy about forging their own connections with the toy, entertainment, and video game industries. In recent years, ICT has hooked up with the CIA to develop a game to help agency, quote, analysts think like terrorists, unquote. CIA spokesman Mark Mansfield explained, 
for out of the box thinking. We are reaching out to academics, think tanks, and external research institutes that are critical in the fight against terrorism, unquote. CIA counterterrorism officials who traveled to ICT headquarters were given VIP tours of Hollywood movie studios. In 2003, the agency landed Jennifer Garner, then playing the role of a secret agent on ABC's popular CIA drama Alias to star in its recruitment videos. Said the CIA's liaison to the entertainment industry, Chase Brandon, quote, If Jennifer ever decides she doesn't want to wear dark glasses, uh, one more time, if Jennifer ever decides she doesn't want to wear dark glasses of the celebrity status, she can put on dark glasses and be a spy. She's got what it takes, unquote. In the meantime, Michael Clark Duncan, who co-starred with Garner in the movie Daredevil, lent his voice to the Navy-aided Sony PlayStation game SOCOM to U.S. Navy SEALs. That same year, Alias itself, complete with Garner's voice, was turned into a video game by Acclaim Entertainment, a company that had donated, quote, 10,000 handheld video games to U.S. troops in the Middle East during the Gulf War. Another game to emerge alongside SOCOM 2 and alias was Kuma War, that's spelled K-U-M-A, developed by Kuma Reality Games in cooperation with the U.S. military. Billed as the first commercial shooter game that allowed players to recreate actual military missions with each combat operation introduced by television footage and a cable-style news anchor, the game also provided players with, quote, video news shows, unquote, and extensive intelligence gathered from news sources around the world, unquote. Like any good entity in the complex, Kuma linked itself to the military through the Pentagon's revolving door of employment. A retired Marine Corps Major General served as one of, the, served as one of its top consultants. In fact, Kuma boasts a board of military veteran advisors, quote, whose job it is to make sure the missions they put out are as realistic as possible, unquote. By mid-2007, Kuma had released 83, quote, missions, unquote, ranging from the killing of Saddam Hussein's sons, Uday and Kusay's Last Stand, Mission 1, to a digital recreation of the May 22, 2004, battle in Sabra City between U.S. troops and the Iraqi cleric Muqtaba al-Sabr's Mahdi Army, Mission 16, and, owing to U.S. failures in Iraq, Sabr City revisited Mission 78. If its website is to, believe, to be believed, Kuma War has a hardcore following not only among civilian gamers, but also among soldiers. One Iraq War veteran quoted on Kuma's Homepage confesses, quote, This game actually makes me flash back and think about the war. But that is not necessarily bad. Being that I will be going back to Iraq for a third tour, I'll say that it's much better fighting from my PC behind a desk than actually slinging lead at each other, unquote. 
Of course, such games are increasingly seen as a means to prepare soldiers to sling lead indeed. In 2006, David Bartlett, the former head of the Defense Modeling and Simulation Office and a co-creator of Marine Dune, told the Washington Post, quote, The technology in games has facilitated a revolution in the art of warfare, unquote. One Iraq War veteran cited in the article suggested that video gaming was key to this ability. One more time. One Iraq War veteran cited in the article suggested that video gaming was key to his ability to unleash a 50 caliber machine gun on a human enemy, unquote. A devotee of the video games Full Spectrum Warrior and Halo 2, he proclaimed, quote, It felt like I was in a big video game. It didn't even phase me shooting back. It was just natural instinct. Boom, 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 boom. I couldn't believe I was seeing this. It was like Halo. It didn't even seem real, but it was real. Now, again, um, interrupting briefly, a flashback to earlier in the program when I was talking about uh, On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, and he attributed the rise in youth violence and uh, mass shootings to the, again, high body count video games, TV programs and movies, and the point-and-shoot video games that young people were uh, playing and said they simulated the Army's audiovisual desensitization and behavior modification techniques to get troops to fire their weapons uh, at the enemy more often. And then just plug this in. This is from one Iraq War veteran cited in the article suggested that video gaming was key to his ability to unleash a 50 caliber machine gun on a human enemy, unquote. A devotee of the video games Full Spectrum Warrior and Halo 2, he proclaimed, quote, It felt like I was in a big video game. It didn't even phase me shooting back. It was just natural instinct. Boom. Boom, boom, boom. I couldn't believe I was seeing this. It was like Halo. It didn't even seem real, but it was real, unquote. When the time came for him to fire his weapon, Bartlett commented, he was ready to do that and capable of doing that. His experience leading up to that time, though, on the ground training and playing Halo and whatever else enabled him to execute. His situation awareness was up. He knew what he had to do. He had done it before or something like it up to that point, unquote. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Sutton, S-U-P-P-O-N, the director of the technology division at Quantico Marine Base, agreed, asserting that troops raised on first-person shooters, quote, probably felt less inhibited down in their primal level, pointing their weapons at somebody, unquote, and noted that video game pre-training, quote, provides a better foundation for us to work with, unquote. The relationship between video games and the military, however, hardly ends there. Gaming machinery is allowing troops to operate other military toys with minimal training. For instance, the Dragon Runner, a small, remote-controlled, car-like vehicle designed to travel inside buildings and spy for marine patrols waiting outside is a case in point. 
developed by researchers from the Naval Research Laboratory and Carnegie Mellon University's Robotics Institute, working with the Marine Corps' Warfighting Laboratory, the Dragon Runner is guided by a six-button keypad modeled after Sony's PlayStation 2 or PS2 video game controller. Major Greg Hines, H-E-I-M-E-S, a Marine attached to the Warfighting Lab project, says it was chosen because, quote, that's what these 18, 19-year-old Marines have been playing with pretty much all of their lives, so they will pick up how to drive the Dragon Runner in a few minutes, unquote. Another Marine had a similar experience with a prototype Gladiator tactical unmanned ground vehicle, a four-foot-tall, 1,600-pound, quote, teleoperated semi-autonomous vehicle, unquote, noting that it took him just five minutes to learn to operate the vehicle. It's like a video game. You have a joystick, and you drive it forward, backward, right, or left. According to Michael Macedonia, when soldiers were asked what they'd like to use to control guided missiles, they picked the PS2 controller. As a result, it has indeed become the preferred mobile device. The Army's iRobot PackBot EOB Tactical Mobile Robot is also guided by what quote, looks like the handheld video game control often attached to a PlayStation, unquote. One soldier, using the robot, proudly told the Associated Press, quote, My family thought it was a waste of time playing those video games. I finally proved them wrong, unquote. Colonel John Burke, the project manager for the Army's unmanned aerial vehicle UAV program, noted that teenage troops are able to learn to launch and fly the Army's drones in a mere eight hours because the controls look, quote, very much like a PlayStation controller, unquote. In 2005, Wired Magazine's military expert, military tech expert Noah Shackman described a 19-year-old Army UAV operator noting that he had been, quote, prepping for the job since he was a kid. He plays video games, a lot of video games. Back in the barracks, he spends downtime with an Xbox and a PlayStation. When he first slid behind the controls of a shadow UAV, the point and click operation turned out to work much the same way, unquote. The Air Force even recruits by using a war-as-play, weapons-as-toys approach with a website feature showing a young camo-clad airman standing in front of a UAV beneath graphics that equate flying drones to playing with radio-controlled toy airplanes. The military has also reworked one of its most successful civilian toys for training purposes. America's Army technology has now been re-engineered to train soldiers, perhaps the very same people recruited by the game in the first place, in the use of remote-controlled Talon robots for operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we'll wrap this chapter up and uh, repeat and emphasize some sections in our next program, because we are all out of time. Boom, 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 boom. This concludes for the record program number 1220, 
War Games Part 2. This is being recorded on December 29th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Happy Holidays.